to Criminal Curiosity, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Jay Townsend, a 20-year-old who is just into true crime. I am super excited to talk about so many true crime cases that are literally stored in my head, and I've been wanting to make a podcast since 2019, and I usually tell my mother all my true crime stories and we'll just sit and talk about it, but she currently is in a different state. So, I mean, this kind of pushed me to make a podcast. So, this episode does mention sexual assault and the death of minors and adults. If this is something that disturbs you, that is completely understandable, and I just want to give you guys a warning. Today, I'm going to be talking about the Cheshire family murders in July 2007. So, let's get started. Cheshire is a typical town where they have these huge houses, the lawn is cut perfectly, it's a middle-class neighborhood. Um, It's a place where anyone pretty much would want to start and raise a family. But on July 23rd, 2007, the brutal murder of a mother and her two daughters would leave the town devastated and absolutely heartbroken. And it's what people will call Cheshire's own 9-11. So a little bit about the Pettit family. So Jennifer Hockey Pettit was born on September 26, 1958. She was a pediatric nurse and was a co-director of a health center at the Cheshire Academy, which is a private boarding school. In 1985, she met her husband, William Pettit Jr., who they also call him Bill, at the Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh, where Jennifer was a new pediatric nurse and William was a third-year medical student at the University of Pittsburgh. From the get-go, William had his eyes on Jennifer, and he decided that that's who he wanted to be his wife. So William tried to impress Jennifer by showing her how to take a patient's blood pressure. He didn't quite get it right, but she was still able to help him and show him the correct way. And as I was reading this, I thought maybe Bill knew exactly what he was doing. I mean, he was a third-year medical student, so he's a pretty smart dude. Um, and taking someone's blood pressure, it's kind of like something you don't forget. I took a healthcare class when I was in high school, and I still do remember how to take people's blood pressure. Um, he was interested in her, and maybe he thought if he fumbled or forgot a step in taking someone's blood pressure, she would help, and then a conversation would start, and it would lead to something new. I mean, when I was in high school, I did the same thing. Whenever I would have a crush on someone and we were working on a group project or something in math class, I would literally act like I forgot what was happening, what I was doing, so that they could help me and the conversation would start. But it, you know, was just a typical high school crush. Nothing happened. So... William and Jennifer got married in 1985, and when William became a doctor, he specialized in endocrinologist. I have no idea what type of doctor that was, but WebMD says that an endocrinologist is a doctor who specializes in glands and hormones and treating diseases in the endocrine system. 
such as type 1 and 2 diabetes and thyroid disease. After they got married, they welcomed their first child, Haley Pettit, on October 15, 1989, and their second child, Michaela Pettit, on November 17, 1995. So a little bit about Haley. So in 1988, Jennifer was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis when Haley was nine years old, and she was determined to help her mom, which I absolutely loved. She would reach out to people she knew, such as her friends and family, and ask them to sponsor her in the annual Connecticut MS Walk, where she named her team Haley Hope. And for seven years in a row, Haley walked with her mom, and they raised $55,000 for the fight against MS. Haley was described as a smart, reserved, and determined girl, which we saw when she raised all that money to help her mom with MS. She was a very athletic girl. She did cross country in basketball. She was an honor roll student at Miss Porter's school, which is a very prestigious school. And when I say prestigious, I mean prestigious because Jackie Kennedy, also known as John F. Kennedy's wife, went there, as well as Gloria Vanderbilt. And in the fall, she was set to attend Dartmouth College to follow in her father's footsteps to study medicine. So, Michaela, the younger child, attended the Chase Collegiate School, and once Haley went off to college, Michaela planned to take over the fundraising for MS, and she called her team Michaela's Miracle. She was described as a gentle soul, and she loved to garden. She loved cooking, and in the evening before the murders, that's what she was doing for her family. On Sunday afternoon, on July 22, 2007, 48-year-old Jennifer and her 11-year-old daughter, Michaela, went to the grocery store to get some ingredients for Michaela because she was planning on cooking for the family. Just like any other time, they felt relaxed and comfortable. Nothing was out of the ordinary. Never realizing that they caught the eye of Joshua... His name is so hard to pronounce. I don't even, I'm going to attempt to pronounce it because I've listened to pronunciations every single time. Kamashajivsky, I would say. But it is said that Joshua chose the pair because Michaela was a very young girl and that the pair looked like they had money. So just like any other Sunday for the Pettit family, they went to church and then after church, Bill went to play golf with his dad and Jennifer and Michaela were planning on going to the beach. Haley was with her friends in Massachusetts and she would make it home for dinner. Michaela made pasta for the family and Jennifer and her two daughters watched TV in the living room while Bill was asleep on the couch. So a little about Joshua. I'm going to call him Joshua because I don't even know how to pronounce his last name. So Joshua was born on August 10th, 1980, and he was Hayes' partner in this home invasion and murder, which we'll talk about very soon. His mother was 16 when she had him, and he was put up for adoption when he was two weeks old. His adopted parents were Benedict and Jude, who were Christians. A lot of people had described Benedict as a cold and controlling man, while Jude was described as quite submissive. Jude, his mother, said that his father pulled him out of school so he can teach him Christian values and would end up homeschooling him. She also said that he, and I quote, wallowed into depression after his grandfather passed away. Joshua had, 
and I quote, had come under satanic influences of the youth. She said that her son was easily manipulated and controlled by others. She said one time she went into his room and all over the walls were words like death, die, and suicide. Joshua was allegedly raped by a teenager that his parents adopted and then Joshua raped his younger sister, Naomi. His parents weren't really into getting any kind of help for mental health. They kind of never believed that mental health is an actual issue. So going to therapy or taking medication, it was something that they didn't believe in. And when they learned that Joshua raped his sister, they didn't get any help for either children. They kind of just brushed it off. They believed that if you went to church, you prayed about it, you will be okay. And in 2002, Joshua's daughter was born and he gained full custody of her because the mother was in rehab for a drug addiction, but his parents would end up raising the child. He also began dating a girl in 2007 who was 18 and he was 26 at the time and her father didn't approve of the relationship because he was what he said a career criminal he was in and out of jail multiple times for burglary charges and the father also said that the reason he was interested in his daughter was because she looked younger than her age the other man in this crime his name is Stephen Hayes. He was born May 30th, 1963. His parents were divorced and he lived with his mother and two brothers. His brothers say that he was very manipulative and one of his brothers claimed that in order to taunt his brothers, he would press a revolver against one of the brothers' heads. Steve would always claim that he is suffering from a psychological problem, but his brother said, Steve is not sick. He is cunning and calculated. He was once arrested and charged as an adult when he was 16 for burglary, and at the time of the family murders, he was arrested over 30 times. His latest arrest was in 2004 when he threw a rock in a woman's car and stole her purse and later paroled in 2006. He was then sent to the Silly Man Halfway House where he met Joshua. So I do want to mention that Joshua was arrested for 18 home invasion burglaries and Hayes mostly stuck to breaking into people's cars. On July 21st, they decided to do what they would call a test run burglary. So the plan was that Joshua would break into the home while Hayes waited outside. And the main goal of this test run burglary was that for Hayes to see how easy it was to break into a family's home and as soon as it was over Hayes said you know I'm in let's do this so the night of July 22nd at 7 45 p.m. Hayes texted Joshua saying I'm chomping at the bit to get started need a margarita soon an hour later, without a reply, at 8.45 p.m., Hayes texted Joshua again, saying, We still on? To which Joshua responded, Yes. Hayes responded, Soon? Joshua said, I'm putting the kid to bed. Hold your horses. Hayes responded, Dude, the horse wants to get loose. LOL. On the night of July 22nd, after the family had dinner and were watching TV, Around 11 p.m., both Haley and Michaela decided to go to bed. 
While Bill was still sleeping on the couch, Michaela went to bed with her mother and Haley went to her own room. So the plan that both men talked about was that they would break into the house, take the family to the car and tie them up, and then burn the house down so that there was no evidence left behind. They never mentioned killing someone, but I mean, they ended up killing someone, so I don't, I don't believe that they never mentioned it, you know? So, at around 3 a.m. on July 23rd, they broke into the Pettit home with a gun and a baseball bat. Bill was still sleeping on the couch, and Joshua took the bat and hit him in the head about four or five times. Joshua told Bill to stay calm and asked where the safe was, and Bill responded and said that there is no safe. Hayes and Joshua both tied Bill's wrist and ankles up, leaving him on the couch, bleeding out. They then made their way upstairs and tied Jennifer's wrist and ankles to the bedpost and put a pillowcase over her head. They took Michaela to her own room and did the same thing to her and the same to Haley as well. They told them the same thing that they told Bill, that they just wanted the money. They went back to Bill downstairs and forced him into the basement with a gun to his head and tied him to the pole and covered him in blankets. I'm not really sure why they covered him in blankets, but he was losing a lot of blood. He was drifting in and out of consciousness. Both men then started to ransack the house, looking from head to toe in the house for anywhere that they could find the money, which they didn't find. But they did find a bank statement that showed the Pettit family had $30,000 in their Bank of America account. So, because of what they found, the entire plan changed, and they decided that when the bank opens at 9 a.m., one of them would take Jennifer and force her to withdraw $15,000. Hayes would be the one to take her to the bank, and before he left, he took two gas canisters from the house and filled them both up, drove back to the family house to drop off the canisters, and then took Jennifer to the bank. Now, there is a video that shows Jennifer going to the bank teller and handing her a note. Jennifer told the bank teller that her family was being held hostage and that the men wanted money. The bank teller looked at the note and gave it to the bank manager who called the police. Jennifer left the bank and the manager called the police at 9.21 a.m. Shortly after the call was made, police were sent to the address in unmarked police cars where they set up perimeter around the house and hid behind trees that were near the house. Inside the house, Joshua sexually assaulted Michaela as she was tied up on the bed, and he did the same to Michaela as well. He then took his phone and took explicit pictures of her, and when Jennifer and Hayes returned from the bank, Joshua showed Hayes the pictures of Michaela, basically wanting a reaction out of Hayes and for him to do the same thing to Jennifer. Hayes then pushes Jennifer onto the living room floor and begins to rape her. Joshua left the room to go check on Bill in the basement and found out that he escaped. Once Hayes learns that Bill escaped, he becomes frustrated and just completely loses it, and then strangles Jennifer to death. Bill makes it across the street to his neighbor's driveway, barely being able to speak. His neighbor comes out the house but doesn't recognize that it's Bill right away because he's completely covered in blood. His neighbors call 911 and Bill is just screaming for his family. 
Meanwhile, Hayes pours gasoline all over the body, including the daughter's room while they were still tied onto the bed. I did want to mention that Haley was able to escape from the restraints, but she collapsed at the top of the stairs, and both Haley and Michaela died from smoke inhalation. After they set the fire and attempted to escape in the family's car, but they didn't make it far because they crashed into a police barrier right down the road and were arrested immediately. So Hayes told the detectives that he drove Jennifer to the bank, raped her, and strangled her, and then poured gasoline on her as well as Haley and Michaela. Different sources say that Joshua lit the match, and some say Hayes lit the match, but both men did pin it on each other. And equally, when it came down to them going to prison, they were basically charged for setting the fire. Hayes told the detectives that from the pictures of Michaela to raping Jennifer, Bill escaping and seeing the police car outside, he just snapped. He said that he only had himself to blame for what happened and that the only thing that was supposed to happen was that they get the money. Joshua admitted to following Jennifer and Michaela in the grocery store because they looked wealthy and had a nice car. He admitted to hitting Bill in the head with a baseball bat, raping Michaela and taking explicit pictures of her. He also said that he thought Michaela was 14 or 16 years old, which I don't even know why he thought that was a better age. Which, I mean, is absolutely disgusting because she's a child and I don't, like I said, I don't know why he thought that was okay. But even if she was 25 years old, that is still rape, you know. And it, ugh, men just disgust me. He said that Hayes was the one to burn the house down. He said that he asked Hayes, and I quote, You can't seriously be contemplating burning those two girls alive. On October 18th, 2010, Hayes' trial started and his attorney, Thomas Ullman, told the jury that sentencing him to life would be worse than the death penalty because, and I quote, it is a fate worse than death. If you want to end his misery, put him to death. If you want him to suffer and carry that burden forever, the guilt, shame, and humiliation, sentence him to, sentence him to life without the possibility of release. But the jury decided to give him the death penalty. And on December 2nd, 2010, Hayes apologized to the family. I don't really know how you could apologize, you know, for that. But he said, death for me will be a welcome relief. And I hope it will bring some peace and comfort to those I have hurt so much. Joshua's trial started on October 13th, 2011. And he never changed his story, saying that they never planned on killing anyone that night. He spoke at the trial about the shame and pain he caused, saying, I will never find peace within. My life will be a continuation of the hurt I caused. The clock is now ticking, and I owe a debt I cannot repay. And how he responded to the jury was, he said, Millions have judged me guilty of capital offenses I did not commit. I did not intend for those women to die. They were never supposed to lose their lives. I don't need 12 people to tell me what I'm guilty of or not guilty of. None of them were there that morning. I know my responsibilities. I will bear them as I should. What I cannot do is claim responsibility for the actions of another. And Joshua was given the death penalty. 
But in August 2015, Connecticut got rid of the death penalty, meaning that both men would be serving life in prison without the possibility of parole. Joshua's defense team filed a motion for a new trial, saying that the trial shouldn't take place in the same place that the crime happened, and that Joshua wasn't the mastermind behind everything and that it was Hayes. But the motion was denied. Hayes never tried for an appeal. He said that he is guilty, he knows exactly what he did, and he doesn't want the family to sit through another trial. So, a lot of things I feel like went wrong in this case. Um, and as I was reading more and more into this, I realized, like I said, a lot of things went wrong. So Joshua's previous defense attorney told the judge that he needed to be watched. He always broke into people's homes at night, and he would even break into state troopers' homes and just stay in their houses and just listen to people breathe as they were sleeping, which is one of the scariest things to happen. You're sleeping and then someone's in your room watching over you and just listening absolutely disturbing. He was described by the attorney as a very intelligent man, but he could be dangerous if he wanted to. His attorney even told the judge, you're never going to see him again, or he's going to be the worst criminal to pass through these doors. Prosecutors were supposed to get a transcript of the sentencing, which is sent to the parole board so that they can get a better understanding of the person and decide if they should be let out on parole or not. In Joshua's sentencing transcript, he was referred to as a calculated, cold-blooded predator with a mental abnormality or a psychiatric problem that needs to be addressed. Now, like I said, he was arrested for 18 home invasion, so he did have experience in all of this. But what the parole board got instead of the real transcript said he was a young, intelligent man that didn't display any mental health problems and showed remorse for his crimes, which gave him parole in April 2007, and three months later, him and Hayes broke into the Pettit house and murdered them. Hayes, like I mentioned, did have a lengthy record. By the time the murders happened, he was arrested 30 times. When people look at his criminal record, no one would think that he would graduate to bigger crimes such as rape and murder. They always thought that he was gonna stick to breaking into cars for the rest of his life, which is pretty much the tip of the iceberg. I mean, so many criminals start off by breaking into people's homes, breaking into people's cars, stealing money, and the next thing you know, they're murderers and rapists, you know? And it's like, never say never, because criminals, like, it, it's just, you never know situation. When I was researching this case, I just asked myself, like, how did this happen? Like, what went wrong? Like, who gave the parole board a completely different transcript that made Joshua free? You know, and all I can say is the criminal justice system. That's it. It's not the best system in the world at all. So in this case, there was a lot of backlash on how the police handled this case. The family believed that the police could have saved their family. I mean, while everything was happening inside, the police were setting up perimeter. When Bill escaped the house and he was laying in the neighbor's driveway, he saw the police in the trees the same time the house went up into flames. Some people questioned why did the police never stop Hayes and Jennifer when they reached the house. The police made it seconds after Hayes and Jennifer came back from the bank. Why didn't the police approach Hayes and arrest him? 
That is a good question. The house went up in flames at 9.57 a.m., meaning the police were at the scene for about 30 minutes only to set up perimeter and watch the house. Now, in the police's theory, defense, they said that they believed that they were dealing with a hostage situation at the time and didn't know if the men inside had weapons. They were also told by higher-ups not to enter the house and do not communicate with anyone inside the house. They were just told to set up perimeter and watch the house, which I mean, if a higher-up tells you to do something, I guess the last thing you want to do is not listen to lose your life and to lose your job. So at the end of the day, all that they really could have done was listen to the higher-up. I feel like it wasn't enough, but at the end of the day, I wasn't there, so just have to go with what they said. Bill Pettit is no longer a doctor. He now manages the Pettit Family Foundation, and the goal of the foundation is, and I quote, continue to raise and distribute funds to fulfill our mission to help educate people, especially those with interest in science, to help support those with chronic illnesses, and a way to help those affected by violence. I was crying when I was researching this. It's just absolutely sad. So since the murders, there have been a number of charitable organizations. One is called Cheshire's Light of Hope. It was founded by Cheshire's residents, Jennifer Walsh and her husband. They place luminaries on each street every single year, and the main goal behind this is for people in the community to get to know each other. Pettit Family Foundation is a nonprofit organization. They donate the money to the towns such as social services, food, and scholarships. In August 2012, Bill Pettit married Christine Paloof. I hope I'm saying her name right. They met at the Pettit Family Foundation and they have a son together. Bill is now a Connecticut state representative representing Plainville as a Republican. At a public memorial service at Central Connecticut University, Bill said, help a neighbor fight for a cause and love your family as a way to honor his amazing family that he will never forget and to make the world a better place one step at a time. And as I'm like talking about this now, I am tearing up because he's such a strong man and I'm so glad that he found happiness again. Um, so that concludes today's episode. Thank you so much for listening and stay tuned for next week's episode that comes out every single Thursday. You can follow my Instagram at criminal curiosity pod, where you can see the pictures of the case behind the scenes or just to keep up with what is going on. This podcast is available on all podcast platforms such as Apple, Google podcasts, and Spotify. And please be safe out there, look out for one another, and until next time, bye everyone.